Luke 22. There's many things I could do today to get started. I could try to catch us up with my own words or this or that. What I decided to do today is just we're going to read the scriptures and we're going to let that set the context for us and catch us up today, okay? Luke 22. Let's go ahead and get started. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. And he went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad, and they agreed to give him money. And so he consented and, brought, and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. So this is the plot to betray Jesus, to have him arrested, ultimately. One of Jesus' chosen, his own disciples, named Judas, is the one to do this. He chooses to betray Jesus. He gets some money from the chief priest to do this. And now he's looking for an opportunity that there's not a big crowd around. So he's looking to do this as secretly as possible. And then in verse 7, Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. And he said to them, Where will you have us prepare it? And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may prepare uh, the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished prepare it there and they went and found it just as he had told them and they prepared the passover the passover was one of the key jewish festivals key um holidays if you will that they celebrated and to understand what that's what this is you have to rewind all the way back to the time of moses thousands of years ago they were slaves in egypt and to free them from Egypt, God sent this man named Moses, and along with him, he sent 10 different plagues. The last of the plagues was the death of the firstborn of everyone. And so to save themselves from this, <clears throat> excuse me, to save them from this, God says, slaughter a lamb and put the blood on the doorpost of your house. And when that happens, I will pass over everyone whose house has that on there. The Egyptians did not do this. The, Israelite, the Israelites did, and so this became known as the Passover, the day that God passed over those who had the blood on their door. And so Jesus and his disciples are celebrating this, but they're celebrating it in a really a new way because this is coming up to the time where Jesus would shed his blood and it would be uh, figuratively applied over the door, over the lives of everyone who would believe in him. And so at that time, God's judgment passes over us because it landed upon Jesus. He was the one sacrificed. He is the true meaning of the Passover. So they're celebrating that here tonight, or here at that night in the scriptures. Verse 14, and when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. <coughs> Excuse me. 
And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, uh, he took the cup and saying, This cup that is poured out for you uh, is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me at the table. Sorry, excuse me. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which one of them it could be that was going to do this. So they're having this time, this close time together. And Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. This is Jesus' closest followers. They have been with him for years. And he says, one of you is going to betray me. They began to question one another, which of them it could be. So they're saying, Peter, is it you? Or John, is it, is it you? And then there's other parts of the Gospels that say they begin to question themselves. They're saying, is it I? The interesting thing about this, no one expected Judas. No one expected him. No one pointed him out. But this is the scene so far. And then this next section makes me laugh a little bit. It's mainly because of where it's placed in our scriptures, but we'll get to that. So verse 24, a dispute also rose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings and Gentiles exercise lordship over those in authority and call them benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is greater, one who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So the scene is they're having the Passover. Jesus says, one of you will betray me. They're st they start saying, well, it's, are you going to betray him? Is it you? Well, it can't be me because I'm the greatest, right? Like I'm the best of all of these guys here. Uh, and so immediately after this, they, they lift their face up and they start becoming overconfident. They start saying, oh, I'm the greatest. Oh, no, I'm the greatest. Well, Peter's probably saying, well, I'm the greatest. I walked on water with the guy. I mean, who can top that? It's, it's, it's not easy to top that. So they're having this kind of conversation. This is what's going on. And then listen to what Jesus says immediately after this. Verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Uh, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. That verse is very important to the rest of today, verse 32. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Real quick, in verse 31, it says, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. It doesn't come across real clearly in our English, but in the Greek, it's in the plural. So he's talking to Peter specifically, to Simon, but he's saying Satan has demanded to have all of you. He's demanded to have all of you and destroy all of you. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Uh, verse 33. But Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus says, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you have denied three times that you even know me. 
So here we have the prophecy. There's the Passover. There's the argument about who becomes the greatest or who is the greatest. Then this is the prophecy. Jesus says, Satan has demanded to have you, to destroy you, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And so Peter bucks up at this point, and he's like, I will do anything with you. I will do anything for you. I will go to prison. I will even die for you. And Peter says, before the rooster even crows, you're going to deny three times that you even know me. So it's interesting that right after they talk about who's the greatest, Jesus starts talking about who's going to fall. 1 Corinthians 10:12 says, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So right when you think you are invulnerable, right when you think nothing can touch you, you're actually at your weakest point at that point. Uh, anyone who knows me knows I'm a big boxing fan. And um, what do you guard in boxing or any fights? You guard your head for the most part. You guard your chin. doesn't matter how tough you are. You take a good shot here, you're going to be waking up in another place. I've seen it time and time again. I've seen so many fights to where you have a guy who's much more talented than the other guy, and you can tell because he's usually super flamboyant and he's going all around the place. And I've seen the other guy that's maybe not so talented, but he's guarding himself. He's keeping his gloves here and guarding his face. And it's usually that guy who's not so talented that ends up winning because he doesn't take that shot that just puts his lights out. So in that same way, these disciples right here, they're arguing about who's the greatest in the midst of Jesus saying, one of you will betray me. So instead of immediately going into prayer and saying, Lord, strengthen me, they start going into themselves saying, it can't be me because I'm, I'm pretty great. So they start, in a sense, letting their guard down. And then in verse 35, Jesus says to them, when you went out, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has a sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. So that verse 35, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. So in other words, when Jesus sends us out, we're equipped, we're prepared. But when we go out by ourselves, in and of ourselves, we're not equipped, we're not prepared, and we're fighting a spiritual battle. So we have who is the greatest, we have the prophecy, now here's the prayer. Verse 39, and he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. And when he had came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. If our Bible was fake and made up, this verse would not be in there because it shows so clearly that Jesus is a man. He's fully God, that we teach that, all the scriptures teach that, but he is fully man as well. We won't be able to understand that, this side of eternity, perfectly. We just know that those two truths are true, and we read in verse 42, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So Jesus is... His uh, passive obedience, his submission to the Father, saying, 
Your will be done, Father, in all things. Verse 43, and there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. And he began to be in agony, and as he prayed more earnestly, his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. And when he arose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them asleep for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. So have you ever fallen asleep in prayer, like conked out in the middle of it? I know we've all probably done something like that. You start praying late at night. You've had a long day and saying, dear God, I just want to give you 110%. And you just fade off. And I'm sure we've all done stuff like that. You get tired. These closest followers of Jesus, even Peter, all of them, they're just men. They're just men. They're weak without, without God. And so they're there. Jesus says, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Jesus has said some very serious things to them, and then they fall asleep. Jesus comes and finds them and says, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. We never pray enough. No one in here can ever say that they have prayed just enough. We can always pray more. But there's, there's times in our life when our prayer life is weak. It's not like temptation is like, oh, He's at a weak spot, I'll wait until he's strong. <laughs> no, when, when our prayer life is weak, temptation is sin and still right there. The problem is you're, you're, you're not as prepared to combat it. So when we, when we don't pray as much, we still face temptation. We're just not as prepared in the same way that they are. So we have the prayer. And now this next part, we have the arrest. Verse 47, while he was still speaking, there came a crowd. The man called Judas, one of the 12, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. Of all the signs that he could have given them, saying, this is the man I want you to arrest, he chose that. He chose a kiss. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? So how did they know where Jesus was? Well, Judas brought them there. And how did Judas know where they were? Because he had left earlier. So how does he know where they were? Well, the other gospels tell us that Judas knew that Jesus went to this spot to pray. So he, Judas used his knowledge of Jesus, his friendship, to betray him. Uh, verse 49. And when those that were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And then they don't even wait for an answer. Verse 50, and one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear, his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and the elders who had come out against him, have you come out as a robber with swords and clubs? Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. So here we have Jesus arrested, betrayed by a friend. And then this next part is where we're going to spend most of our time for the rest of the, today, verses 54 through 62. This is Peter's denial. This is a well-documented story in our scriptures. It's actually found in every gospel account we have. It's found in Matthew 26. Mark 14, Luke 22, and John 18. So in other words, no matter which gospel you read, you'll find this account in there of Peter 
denying Jesus. Verse 54. And they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. Real quickly, as I go through this, I'm going to be referencing the other gospel accounts. Like I said, it's found in every one of them. I'm going to be taking the, the accounts, the information from that, and using that to, to add the details that maybe Luke doesn't have in here. What I want to do is I just want to give us the fullest picture possible we can of this event, of what's happening. So they seized him and led him away, and the Gospel of John actually tells us that they bound him. So they put him in chains, and they, they handcuffed him, if you will. So they bound him up, and they took him to the high priest's house. So Mark 14 actually tells us that all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes were there together. So have you ever been in a room where people don't like you? Have you ever been in a room uh, where, have you ever been in an interview when it's like a board interview and there's like a bunch of people there and it's nerve wracking, you get a little bit nervous, but usually in those places, they, they don't hate you. They just, they're gr- grilling you. Can you handle what's going on here? Let's test your knowledge, your skill level. Have you ever been in a room where everyone wants to kill you? And someone reminded me like, well, I have taught middle school, so, uh, and my wife has as well, so, I mean, maybe the, you have encountered that, but th- Jesus, like, literally encountered that. Everyone in the room hates him. They have tried for years to capture in him, and now they're seizing on this moment that they have. They've captured him, and it says the high priests were there. Who is that? What is a high priest? Well, a high priest in Israel would offer sins for the whole nation. And for himself, you have to go all the way back to Leviticus 4 to find that. And here's an interesting thing. I won't be able to unpack it all today, but I just wanted to give it to you. There is, uh, so we all know the Ten Commandments, and one of them being, you shall not murder. Well, there was also laws for if someone was accidentally killed by someone else. And in that case, what would happen is the person who did that would be exiled to a city that was away from uh, the core of the people. And so there was a law that says when the high priest died, those people who were exiled were set free. I can't get into that today, but there's that for you. And uh, I'm just going to pray that maybe God will open up something in your heart about what's happening here and then that. Okay, the high priest, his most important duty was to conduct service on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And uh, in the Old Testament, they had the temple or they had... uh, the ark of God, and it was surrounded, um, and it was called the most holy place, or the holy of holies. And so once a year, the high priest would go in there. He would go behind the, fa- the veil and stand directly before God and offer sacrifices, again, for himself and for all of the people. This happened year after year after year when the high priest died or turned over or whatever happened. A new high priest would come in, and year after year, same sacrifices over and over all the time. So at this time of Jesus, they took him to the high priest's house. There are two high priests that we know of by name in the scriptures. The first one's name is Annas. And he's the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the other high priest. So when they take Jesus, they arrest him. They take him to the high priest's house. They're taking him actually probably where both of these guys lived. It wasn't uncommon for families to live together. And especially with this being a very wealthy family, uh, this courtyard could have multiple places in it where both of them were there. Annas was a leader of the Sanhedrin, 
which is basically the Israelic Supreme Court. We can refer to it that way to understand it better. And they had this group called the Great Sanhedrin, which was made up of about 70 men and high priests. This number fluctuated from time to time, but it was, it was a lot of men there. They were usually wealthy. They were usually very well educated, and they knew their Bibles very well. And all of these people are there. The other high priest we know of, his name is Caiaphas. He is the son-in-law of Annas, the, the other one I mentioned. And it was uh, Caiaphas who mentioned in John 18, uh, all the religious leaders are arguing about what to do with Jesus, and he's the one who says really unknowingly of what he's really saying, it's better that one man should die than the whole nation should perish. And so what he's actually saying, even though he doesn't know it, it's better that one man should die than all of us should, should perish under the wrath of God. That's exactly what happened. Caiaphas is a member of the Sadducees. There are two main religious groups during this time, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. And I'll help you understand the difference really quick. The Pharisees believed in the spirit world and the afterlife. The Sadducees did not. So imagine if this life is all you have, and after this, nothing. That would be sad, you see. Good. Y'all are quick. You got it. Okay. Sadducees and Pharisees. So Caiaphas is a Sadducee. He tore his robes during the trial of Jesus. So he calls Jesus a blasphemer. So as a high priest tearing his robes, he's expressing anger and he's showing off a little bit for the crowd. He, uh, he pronounces death on Jesus. And then uh, Matthew 26 says this, Then they spit in Jesus' face and they struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who struck you? So they blindfold him, they spit in Jesus' face, and then they slap him. And then they, they mock him, saying, You couldn't even see who hit you, so who hit you? Tell us who hit you. They're mocking him at this point. And Peter's there while all this is going on. He sees everything. Uh, so who is Peter? Also called Simon in different passages. Well, he was a fisherman. He was often seen as the primary disciple of Jesus, the spokesman for the apostles. He walked on water with Jesus at one point by Jesus' power, not his. And his name in the Greek, Petros, just means rock. Keep that in mind. I'll bring that up in a little bit. But the beginning of the verse, notice verse 54, where is Peter? It says, and Peter was following at a distance. We could spend the rest of the time right there. There's a lot right there. Let me ask you, how distant are you from a consistent prayer life? How distant are you from reading the scriptures every time that you can? How distant are you from community with other believers? How distant are you from being a good church member? Rick mentioned it already. We as a church are choosing the uh, community Bible reading journal. And in there, all of us, Every member of City View Church reads the same scriptures every day. And he mentioned Solomon. We were, and I was talking with the guys in our group about that this week, just the different things. One of the things that struck me was it called David several times uh, uh, righteous, following God's laws and precepts, obeying God. And I'm like, but you, God, you know what he did, right? Like he messed up. But this just, God's just like, he follows my precepts, he obeys, he, he's after my own heart. And so what I took from that was when, when 
uh, David asked in Psalm 51, blot out my transgressions, he did. So God doesn't hold these things against us, continually bring them up to you and saying, oh yeah, you're, you're saved now, but you have messed up so much. That's not God's heart towards us. He forgives us. And then the other guys bring up things that they saw. Like Rick has already mentioned, Solomon was very wise. And then he had like tons of wives. Who signs up for that kind of stuff? I mean, wow, very, uh, not, not a great example to do. But so how distant are you from reading the scriptures every day? God's word, how distant are you from that? Are you a good community member? Do you show up every time that you can? Are you a good church member? Do you show up every time you can and do you serve? Evaluate these things. So Peter is there. Peter, the rock, is there. And Matthew 26 tells us that he, he goes inside the courtyard and sets down the, with the guards. Listen to this. This is why. Matthew 26, 58. He sat down to see the end. He wanted to see how this was going to end, how it was going to end up with Jesus. Verse 55. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. They kindled a fire for light and for warmth. Keep in mind that they don't have electricity during this time. They, don't, uh, they have to do things manually. They have to start a fire manually, so that's what they did. And it's at night uh, that they are having this trial for Jesus. So this trial, it was never going to be a fair trial, never. They had plotted for, against Jesus for some time now to capture him, to kill him. And according to Sanhedrin law, the trial could not be held at night. But yet it's at night when they're holding this. And keep in mind, the high priest, the scribes are there, the guys who have the Bible memorized, try memorizing the book of Leviticus. That's not going to be a lot of fun. These guys did it. They knew their scriptures. They know exactly what to do, what not to do, but yet they do exactly what the scriptures say not to do. And then they brought false witnesses. They brought them. Like imagine having a trial against someone, and you bring someone you know is lying, and, and then that person testifies in court. And on top of that, they didn't punish the false witnesses. So they're compounding their, their sins here, their mistakes. And for cases of capital punishment where the death penalty is invoked, the law was at least one day had to pass before the person was executed. That didn't happen there. They rushed through this thing to try to achieve their goal. And they sat down in the courtyard together, and the guards were there. You can imagine this environment at night. There are hundreds of people there, maybe thousands. There are dozens and dozens of priests. There are many, many guards. It's probably loud. There's people that are very angry there, yelling at Jesus, spitting at him, mocking him. And Peter is right there. And he's doing his best just to blend in at this point. He sat down among them. Now listen to this, verse 56. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, this man was also with him. So who was this person? Well, she's a servant, which automatically placed her a little bit lower in society. And she's a woman that placed her lower than men in society as well. In this day, in this culture, women could not testify in court. Their, their testimony was not accounted. And so remember when I said Peter's name means rock? So you have this guy who's a rock figure there, and then he's 
encounters this really insignificant figure in the story, a servant girl, and he begins to crumble. So she says, this man was also with him. But how did Peter get in here? Did he just waltz in with the crowd? I mean, did they let anyone into the high priest's house? No, they don't. Listen to this. This is John 18, 16. It says, Peter stood outside of the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. It's probably John who's talking about himself there. John knows the high priest. We're not told exactly how, but he knows him, and he knows this servant girl. So he went out and spoke to this girl. She's keeping watch at the door, and they let Peter in. So that's how Peter got in. And then this girl who sees him as he's coming in says, I, I know you. You are also with him. So she notices him. How does Peter respond? Verse 57. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. The Gospel of Matthew and Chapter 26 says he denied it before them all. So he's not just talking to the servant girl. He's letting everyone know, I do not know him. So you can see now Peter starting to crumble a little bit just because the servant girl noticed him. And a little later, someone else saw him. This is verse 58 and said, you are also one of them. But Peter says, man, I am not. So verse 58 begins saying, a little later. So some time is passing. This is not exactly back to back. Some time is passing, but someone else notices Peter and says, you are also one of them, one of Jesus' followers. And he says, man, I am not. In Matthew 26, verse 72, we get a little bit more detail. Not only does he deny Jesus, it says he denied it with an oath, saying, I swear I don't know him. Verse 59, and after the interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, certainly this man was also with him, for he too is a Galilean. So about an hour passes by, and another person notices him and actually calls him out for his accent. Matthew 26 again tells us that they said, your accent betrays you. You're a Galilean. So you know when you've encountered someone from the south, you can pick up their accent pretty easily. We say y'all and all those kind of things, and the people from the north say use guys and a lot of that stuff, and then we, we all talk a little bit differently. So in Galilee, they had some kind of twang to their voice, and they notice him saying, you're from Galilee, you are a follower of Jesus. How does Peter respond? But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And this is, again, this is Peter's third denial. And Matthew gives us some more details. It says he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear. So in other words, he is saying, I swear to God, I don't know who this man is. Or he's saying, God, kill me right now if I'm a liar. He's trying his best to make his, his denials um, believable. He wants the other people to believe him, saying, I do not know this man. So let me just say, one of the most evident indications of the genuineness or at least the consistency of your faith is your language. Do you use words that you shouldn't and secretly or in front of others? Do you curse? Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. James 3.8, but no human being can tame the tongue. 
It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. For from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives? Or can a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. You see the contrast that's being pointed there. Can, can fresh water come straight from the ocean? Or can an apple tree suddenly drop a pumpkin? You get the idea that's happening there. The Bible's saying things are consistent within themselves. So in other words, your language, you, you, you might say, I love Jesus, but then in the same breath, use curse words and this and that. And the Bible's saying that shouldn't be. That's a contradiction. That doesn't work. That is not a good testimony. And I know there's, t- there's always talk around these kind of things. Well, we have freedom in Christ. Think about that for a moment. You have freedom in Christ. Freedom from what? Freedom from sin. That's what your freedom in Christ is for. It's not the freedom to do whatever you want. That's not freedom in Christ. Freedom in Christ is freedom from sin. So Peter, at this point, he has denied Jesus three times. He's cursing and swearing. And what did, what did Peter do the first time? That he, that he was noticed, I do not know him. What was that? That's a lie. So he's lying. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. Mark adds some detail here. says the rooster crowed twice. So in those days, they didn't have alarm clocks. Uh, shocker. And they used uh, farm animals to understand what the beginning of the day was like when it started. So Peter hears this. I wonder what went through his mind the rest of his life when he heard these kind of sounds. Maybe it reminded him of that night. Maybe it served to remind him of his own weakness. Maybe it reminded him of what Jesus said in Matthew 10:33, "But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven." How does what happens after this? Verse 61. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. So notice they're within distance of each other to see and recognize each other. Jesus is being yelled at, spit upon, and hit, and mocked. And Peter's saying, I don't know who he is. I'm not one of them. Notice Jesus didn't out Peter or call him a liar. He simply let Peter's comments stand, even though they were wrong. You've heard the saying, a picture is worth a thousand words, right? How many words are in this look in verse 61? And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. What was in his look? I think this was it. I think that look said, I know you, Peter. I know you better than you know yourself. I still love you, Peter. And that's why I'm not saying a word right now, because I am about to bear your sins. Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, and the rooster crowed, and what happens? Peter, at this point, he was adamant about fighting. He said, I will fight with you, and I will die with you. And he's denied him now, and Jesus looks at him in verse 62, and he went out and wept bitterly. 
This is an interesting word that's used. It's only used twice in our scriptures, and both times it's for uh, Peter's denial. So Peter couldn't hold it together anymore. He went out and wept bitterly. He couldn't worry about looking bad or holding things together or saving face in front of people. He's completely broken. The rock is completely broken and shattered at this point. He knew that he knew Jesus, and he knew that he had lied, and he betrayed Christ. Remember earlier when we hear about another man doing this? His name was Judas. So after Peter has betrayed Christ, he went out and wept. How did Judas respond when he betrayed Christ? Matthew 27 tells us. It says, uh, Matthew 27, verses 3 through 5, Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind, and he brought back the 30 pieces of silver of the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said to him, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and went and hanged himself. There are six mentions of suicide in the Bible, and Judas is one of them. Notice Peter and Judas are sorry for what they did. They're sorry. What's the difference? Well, the Bible tells us, it's in 2 Corinthians 7.10. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. That verse could not be more applicable than to this situation right here. Peter goes out and weeps bitterly. Judas goes and hangs himself. So the Bible, I think, tells us fairly plainly: Peter had godly sorrow. Judas had worldly sorrow. And I'll just quickly clarify that for you. Are you sorry because you got caught or because it's wrong? Are you sorry because there are consequences and you don't like dealing with those? Are you sorry because it hurts God? That's the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. And this is why in a real sense that true repentance is measured over time and not in a moment. It's not in a flash of emotion that we measure these kind of things. We take people at their word in that moment. If someone says, I repent of my sins, I believe in Jesus, we take you at your word right there. But we measure the genuineness of those words over time. How does it work its way out? We saw how it worked out in Judas that he went and hanged himself. How did it work out in Peter? We'll get to that. So at this point, some of you might be looking back at the screen and like, hey, this is a series of walking with Jesus uh, this sermon seems to belong more in a series of how not to walk with Jesus. And you're, you're right. I mean, it's like this is the textbook example of what not to do, to fold under pressure, to deny him, to betray him. So why this? Well, this passage has been on my heart for some time. And um, no, it's not a conventional passage in, in this kind of series. But sometimes walking with Jesus isn't conventional. Sometimes it's not cookie cutter. Sometimes it doesn't make sense, and it's not always Skittles and rainbows. It's not always just something that makes you happy. It's not, um, you're, you're just not always walking around with a smile, walking with Jesus. Sometimes it's hard, and just admit it. Sometimes you absolutely fail him, and so do I. Walking with Jesus is not something that we're always getting better. Sometimes we completely blow it. 
Jesus is not looking for us to get better. He's looking us for, to us to stay repentant, to stay reliant on him, to always have our faith in him. So we saw how Judas responded. How did Peter respond? Jesus is crucified. He's buried. After three days, he rises again. He calls for Peter by name, and he goes and talks to him. And Jesus asked him three times. This is in John 21. Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? And Peter answers every time, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. So Jesus tells him, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, and feed my sheep. So Jesus restores Peter to ministry. So yes, Peter had an impressive resume up until then, and then completely blew it, folded, and denied Jesus. And Jesus restores him. This is good news to people like me, that we blow it sometimes. We sin against God. And sometimes, sometimes we get it in our head from wherever it comes from that God can't use you anymore. And we know from what the scriptures say that that is untrue. If God can't use sinful people, then he can't use anyone. That's all he has to work with is sinful people. So Jesus restores Peter to ministry. And so what does Peter do after this? Does he live as, as a uh, second-class citizen among the apostles and they're always looking down upon him for what he did? No. In Acts chapter 2, Peter, uh, Peter preaches and 3,000 people are saved. And later in his life, an angel breaks Peter out of jail. And then even later in his life, Peter messed up again, and he was showing some sinful discrimination towards people, and he was confronted by another apostle. His name is Paul. And what did Peter do? He received that correction. He repented again. And ultimately, Peter died a martyr. Church tradition tells us he was crucified upside down. So, and he says that he wasn't worthy to be crucified, to die in a manner as his Lord has. So in his final hours, Peter did not shrink back from being associated with Jesus. In fact, what Jesus said about Peter came true. He prayed his faith didn't fail, and it didn't. He had a moment of failure, but his faith didn't fail. But the truth is, ultimately, we don't compare ourselves to Peter or to Judas You might see a lot of Peter in yourself. You might see some of Judas in yourself. We do not compare ourselves with other people. You could compare yourself against me in a lot of ways. I could compare myself against you. And a lot of times we do so in ways that makes us feel better. I could compare myself against you and make myself feel a a little bit better. I'm not as bad as that guy. Or you're not as bad as me. If you're going to compare yourself against someone, compare yourself to Jesus. The Bible says that, He knew no sin, never sinned. We fall short of that. We fall short of the glory of God. Hebrews 4.14. We mentioned um, that the the high priests, the elders, the scribes, all the highest religious leaders were there, but the high priests were there. The Bible talks about Jesus as being our true high priest. Hebrews 4.14, since we have such a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. So why can Peter hang on, and why can you and I hang on and still believe even though we fail? Because we have a great high priest, and because we have him, then we can hold fast to our confession. If we have him to hold fast to, that's good. He never changes. 
you and I change all the time and we mess up all the time. That's why we can't hold on to our own circumstances. Are you going through a good time right now? Is it, are you just feeling spiritually at your best right now? Don't hold on to that. Hold on to Jesus. And through the good times and the bad, you have him. Hebrews 10. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Remember what I said, year after year, the high priest goes in, new sacrifices, new high priest, new sacrifices, year after year after year. And then contrast that with what Hebrews 10 says about Jesus. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. <coughs> Excuse me. So every other high priest stands up in the temple, makes their sacrifices, and they're always working because it's never done. Jesus goes, makes one sacrifice, and sits down. He's done. And it's a perfect sacrifice. Okay, like I said, we see ourselves in, all, in the characters of this story. Where Peter was cowardly before his enemies, Jesus was absolutely courageous. Where Peter was weak and crumbled, Jesus was strong. Where Peter completely folded under pressure, Jesus was steadfast. And the same is for you and I. Where we have failed, where we are weak, where we are cowardly, Jesus never changes, and he's always strong for us. You know, the scriptures say that when we are faithless, he remains faithful. How often are you faithless? Like, honestly, how often are you faithless? I know we all want to put on a face for someone sometimes and, and, and just pretend, I, I, you know, I always believe in God. No, you don't. <laughs> None of us do. We, always, we, we, we stumble from time to time. You might have moments of great faith, and that's fine. And we should seek for our faith to be stronger. We should encourage one another. That's actually one of the purposes of this morning is to encourage each other. But the truth is, you and I are not the, un, the, uh, the rock steady, always there, always perfect ones. That one, that one position is re reserved for God alone. When we are faithless, he remains faithful. So have you messed up? God's there, and he doesn't hate you. He loves you. We talked about at the very beginning, how did Peter start at this? Verse 54, it says, and Peter was there following at a distance. Are you at a distance from God today? There is a solution to that. James 4.8, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. So in other words, if you are at a distance Close the distance. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Maybe you're here today, and you feel convicted because you see Peter in yourself. Are you a closet Christian? Do, you, do other people know that you follow Jesus? If you were brought before a court, would there be enough evidence to convict you of being a disciple? Maybe today you can feel in your heart. You can see it in your mind. Jesus turning and looking at you in all your bad moments, in all your failures, in all your sin, Jesus turns and looks at you. How will you respond?